0: Hello, I'm Joe Pantoliano and I'm Daniela Pantoliano and welcome to No Kidding Me Too. Yeah, today we
1: are speaking with a psychotherapist and author, Dr. Howard Gluss, about life after COVID, you know, getting back... um, to, it's not normal by any means, but the kind of post-traumatic stress that has occurred, I know, in, in uh, my life, and I don't know if you can relate to that, Daniela.
0: Oh, yeah. But, it's very nerve-wracking going back into the world. I feel two things. I feel very excited and like, oh, yeah, it never happened. Let's go to a bar and dance. And then also like, oh.
1: I'm still not shaking hands.
0: I don't want to go It'd be around people. But the, the be, not being around people isn't fear of getting COVID. It's just, I don't want to be around people.
1: Well, I think that's a good thing. I, I, you know, <laughs> I was I was like that way before COVID ever radioed yeah. his ugly head. Um But hey, let's get back and fire up the Zoom and talk to Dr. G.
0: Let's do it. I'm actually, I'm very excited because this is our first doctor. This is our first mental health care professional that we're talking to.
1: Okay, we're talking to Dr. Howard Gluss, who we call Dr. G, the good doctor. (laughs) And uh, Danny and I are very happy to meet you.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
1: You've had a very interesting life, uh, Howard. Uh, Can you tell us about this This rare bone disease that you had and, and the isolation that you experienced as a kid?
2: Sure. Um, when I was uh, from the ages about six to sixteen, I had an illness called osteomyelitis, which is a bone disease, and it traveled to different parts of my body. And what it did is it broke down my immune system to the point that I couldn't really fight infection. So I had many surgeries, uh, mostly on my right hip my right leg uh, to try and save the basically my leg and the and my hip and the bone. So because I was susceptible to infection, I had to spend a lot of time in isolation at that time. That's how they dealt with it. So I'd be in this small, tiny little room and um, I couldn't really do very much. I many times I was in a body cast and I really was the boy in the bubble. And that lasted for about ten years.
1: So it started at what age?
2: At age six, oh and gosh. lasted till about sixteen. I, uh, but that's when I had most of the surgeries. It still went on for a while, but I seem to have outgrown it. But it left a, you know, a lasting impression. And you know, it's funny that you asked me about that because I, I, when COVID started. I used to think to myself, this is so much of what the experience of isolation that people are going through, what it's like. And I remembered my original you know, thoughts and memories come up of my original trauma and being isolated and how I dealt with it, and then how I could understand that and then go out and try to help other people who were suffering the same way, because that was the first major changes. We all became isolated. Mm -hmm. We all got disconnected.
0: Yeah. Was that hard for you going back into an isolation or was it somehow easier and like you knew what you had to do to cope with it?
2: I think it was a combination of both, to be honest. It, you know, I, I'd like to say as a psychologist that we get over everything, but we know we don't. We end up spending our lives working with everything. And hopefully, if you've done enough therapy or enough work on yourself, you try to create a distance from that experience so you can actually think through it and not just be reactive. So it definitely is always a part of my psyche and brings up some of that fear, that anxiety, the sense of hopelessness. But I feel like I had the tools and I surrounded myself with people that care about me, that I was able to actually take that experience and make it work for me instead of against me. And it helped me a lot with patients too. And having things like Zoom and ways of communicating were very you know helped a lot too. I didn't have all that back then.
0: Right. That was going to be one of my my next questions was like how your childhood was with that. Like did your parents do like how did they try to handle you still having a childhood even in isolation?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I was able to get, uh, you know, there were social workers, there were different people that would come into the room, and would help me, uh, you know, would do stuff do play therapy. And I was only six years old. But um, it was always weird and awkward, because they were all covered up. You know, they had masks on, and they had gowns on, and there was only so much I could do. So I think my parents, try to give me as much activity. I'd have tutors come in mm-hmm. that would help me with school. Unfortunately, my parents were good Jewish parents, so they'd bring me lots of food. <laughs> that was always going to be the cure. So that put on a lot of weight, but, you know, they were afraid to say no to me. And uh,
1: do, do you have any siblings, any brothers or sisters? I have
2: two older brothers. And uh, so I was the baby of the family, too. So I think that was hard for my parents also. And yeah. uh, I, I think they had a lot of guilt that they couldn't do more to try to help me. You know,
1: the the, the image that I've got is the glass menagerie. You know, it's like uh, the idea of that uh, everybody's afraid you're going to break. Did you did you, did you get out? Did you ever feel that, that they were? Yeah.
2: People were so careful around me. Um, especially even when I went out because I wasn't, you know, I'd have a stay in for a month or two, and then I'd come out for a while, I'd be in a wheelchair and then I would be okay. And I'd be in crutches and then it would possibly come back. So, you know, this was the seventies. They, you know, they just didn't know always what to do about infection and how to fight it. And so they did treat me with kid gloves. Definitely. Um, But, you know, I I look back on it. It's been a long time. A lot of positive things came out of it for me, too, that I felt as though I developed a sense of resiliency. It allowed me to find my strengths and what I would be good at. Being so isolated helped me a lot with my imagination because a lot of times I couldn't do things in real time, Mm -hmm. but I could do things in my imagination so that i felt got very developed you know i would write i would do other things to try to you know picture what it would be like quote to be normal um the, where i was situated in the hospital i'm from montreal there was a, the montreal forum is across the street and at that time that's where the canadians played it's also where all the rock concerts would come so I'd be able to see people waiting in line, and I used to think. Now I'm going to imagine what it would be like to be at that concert, mm. you know, as though I could go. And mm-hmm. you, I, I look at that now, and having that illness gave me a, a great sense of using any kind of creative tool. I remember Elton John was opening with Yellow Brick Road, <laughs> and I kept thinking, "I wonder what it's like in there." I'm going to imagine myself in the concert. So you you use whatever you can to make it.
0: What made you decide to become a therapist and not, uh, you know, a rock musician when you had all that creativity and, you know,
2: I couldn't sing. (laughs) (laughs) That was the first thing. And I (laughs) don't play any musical instruments. Uh, I think being a a good psychologist and a therapist is very creative. When you went to school, college, did you
1: kind of wind up there? The doctor I worked with for many years was my my psychiatrist. He was an anesthesiologist at first. So he went, he went through to college and, you know, his medical degree, what have you. And then he, years in, he decided he was going to become uh, a psychiatrist uh, while he was being an anesthesiologist. And I don't know if you saw the documentary, no kidding me too. There's six personalities in in that documentary. One of them is a guy named Doc, who is a um, cardiothoracic surgeon. And, and based on the work that we did, you know, this is he was. I think he was the early fifties. He decided to go back to college to become a psychiatrist, and now he's a psychiatrist.
2: Yeah, I had an interesting trajectory too. Actually, after in my late teens. I took an acting class at school and really loved it. So I ended up uh, going to theater school and became an actor in Canada and had some success and then ended up in San Francisco at the American Conservatory Theater as one of the only foreign students at the time that they would accept. So I ended up working with them for about three years. And to me, acting was very therapeutic. It was a way I found out a lot about myself. I got in touch with my feelings. And I was good enough at the time to be able to translate that, you know, into actually being an actor, and had some some good success when I was young. And I, again, I'd always been fascinated with psychology. And to me, acting is psychology. Yes. It's just yes. Definitely just a different way of expressing it. Mm-hmm. And after I finished my stint with ACT, I ended up in a relationship that brought me down to L.A. I did the acting thing for a little while, but, um, you know, I started to recognize it was you know, I'd walk into a room and there'd be 50 kids that looked just like me. And uh, I had always kept, I decided to go back to school and always kept up my schooling at the same time, did some work. And then I had an opportunity, I got a scholarship to go into a PhD program and decided that I was going to do that. And so the acting kind of metamorphosized into, you know, continuing to study psychologists, but be- psychology becoming a psychologist and then after that 10 year trajectory i ended up in some ways acting again because i had a radio show at kbc for years and other things i would do and now i'm doing some tv shows so that gives me that creative outlet again
1: i read that about you and and what what i wanted to tell you is uh, very early on in my in my acting career one of the first professional jobs I got in a East Coast production, touring production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, how great! And I think I was like twenty-two years old. I called this mental hospital, but I was able to make an appointment to go in and sit sit in the in the floor, so, you know, and, and meet people. And and I did that for three days, and I met a guy. Named Henry, I still remember his name, and I didn't. I didn't talk to a doctor about what his diagnosis was, but he was really amped up. So I think he was schizoid effective, but uh, probably, um,
2: right? You know, manic.
1: Uh, manic. Yeah, manic uh, highs and lows, and he would he would see things. He would say, "You're powerful, Joe. You're powerful." But he he also was an, a chain smoker, and he would burn himself with the cigarettes, and he would also put holes in his clothes. You know. And I took all of that behavior and I put it into this character. Uh, uh I was playing a character named Billy Bibbit. But then I I did I started doing that. I just found that the research and the ideas, like, okay, you could cast it apart. Like I did the remake of From Here to Eternity years ago, 1970, 79, something like that. And 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 this guy. Angelo Maggio was the character's name. At some point, he he's he's always going up against. You know, he's kind of a lovable, natured, aggressive kind of guy, and he he goes up against this guy Fatso Judson, who's who runs the stockade, and he's he's um and and Judson is um oh, what do they call people that love love to give pain to people and beat them up? masochist he's yeah he was a masochist and so he he eventually gets masio in the stockade and he beats him you know And he beats him and he beats him and he beats him uh and 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 masio starts losing his mind so you know i i I found that he was fragile and i i just would go to these mental hospitals and and describe the trajectory of that character's uh through line to the doctors and 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 ask them to kind of like guess, you know, give me a ballpark of where I did the same thing with, with Ralph Cifaretto on the Sopranos. So I, 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 that, that's, I find that to be the really fun part of putting, you know, building a character.
2: Yeah. You know what we talk about being creative. So one of the things when, because I understood the, at least the process of what acting was about for actors, having studied it, uh, when I graduated, I taught a course in personality in uh, psychopathology at a university, and I used to get a lot of psych students, but also actors and directors and people would come and take the class. And I would start saying things like, okay, so if you're treating a patient like this, or if you're at you're developing this character, here's some things for you to think about. And what happened is eventually it developed into a book that I wrote called Real People, which is about uh, finding the psychology in different characters geared towards creative people trying to understand like the psyche of a uh, psychopath and why they would make certain choices. And then I would show film examples. And so, again, it was an interesting way to use different parts of myself. And I've taught the, the book is called Real People. And uh, I ended up teaching classes in it, ended up being on the Vancouver uh, Vancouver Film School Board of Directors. So to me, there it's just such a great tool to be able to see into that psyche and then find a way to translate it into action.
0: And your second book you're writing is about... Um... Surviving success, which I think is really interesting. And I think ties in with the acting thing a lot. Because my dad always says, you know, he's this actor. He's been in over a hundred movies. He's gotten everything he wanted. Why does he still do the things he does? Why is the hole still not filled? And I think I just I've never seen a title like that. And I think that's very interesting because in some weird way, I fear success. Like, I fear failure, but I also fear success. And I don't know if that stems from, like, my dad. It was, like, a very successful person and, you know, actor. and But his success, like, took him away from his family. It, like, you know, allowed him, like, he... Had these behaviors, but it wasn't because of his success. It was because of his trauma. But like, I think I say it, I associate... Danielle, Say
1: it. I'm an asshole.
0: No, no. But I think I associate some things like that I've missed in my childhood. <laughs> Is that a clinical
2: diagnosis? Yeah.
0: <laughs> but like, I associate those things with success.
2: Well, since we're talking about acting, uh, or let's say entertainment, or um... yeah,
0: creative. Feels.
2: Creative endeavors. You know, yeah. and, and like I said, you could be a creative endeavors. Aren't just related to entertainment. They could be a lot of different things. What I've found in my own practice and working with people, a lot of times you get like, especially actors, you know, they, they struggle for 20 years and nothing maybe happens. And then something pops and they get all this success. But Perhaps, and I'm generalizing now, but perhaps they thought, you know, if I become a big star or I get all this acting success, all my problems will be taken care of. And they they get that notoriety, or they finally get some money, and they realize it only brings on a whole new set of issues. And the issues that they thought that were going to be uh, healed by that success never really get, you know, they just get worse, because the real healing isn't doing the internal work, regardless of what's happening externally. And and then so then what happens is, you know, they they basically freak out, and there's a regression. And unconsciously, they start to want to regress to a time where they felt comfortable, because in the struggle, they felt comfortable, that's all they knew. You get the success, it's like entering a new world, and you have to get used to that experience. You have to get, you know, it's like going from, you know, grade school to high school. You have to get used to the new dynamics, the new experience. And for a lot of people, they just don't know how to do that. Or also, they were so invested in their, you know, pathology, or you see it with with addicts, you know, they don't want to quit because they won't be able to be creative if they quit. You know that some of their creative stems from their addiction, but a lot of times, their addiction is actually stifling their creativity keeps yeah. them in the same place. So people like to be comfortable They don't like to feel uncomfortable. And uh, another dynamic is, you know, when they're in the struggle, they're projecting, you know, a lot of their problems onto the struggle. Well, I'm depressed because I'm struggling. I'm depressed because I haven't made it. I'm depressed because no one's recognizing my work. Maybe the real depression had something much deeper that was uh, funneling it. They get that success. They can't tolerate it. So they regress or they start becoming self-destructive. You can see the same in sobriety. People become sober for a while, and then they just can't seem to get a sense of themselves or feel comfortable in it. So something happens. And in a moment, you know, they relapse. And it only takes a moment.
0: Yeah. You have these seven principles to help sobriety. What? So can you like tell us what they are and then how to like use them and work Working them?
2: on the book. So I have to see if, if I remember them all.
0: I have them. I have the list so I can help. I can. Okay. Yeah. Why don't you ask me? So vision. Yeah,
2: I was dealing with a client today and I said to her and we're dealing, her sobriety is interesting because her sobriety is around food and she is obese. She's about five foot seven, 400 pounds. Mm. and She's using food the same way someone else would use any kind of drug. And she, but she's starting to turn the corner and losing some weight. We're talking about the bariatric surgery. I said to her, I want you to get a vision of what would it be like for you to lose the 200 pounds that you need to lose? What would your life look like? What do you think you could do? What are you working towards that helps people make decisions uh, you know, you maybe you have to get rid of negative people in your life that just pull you down if you can, because they just trigger you. You don't even have to understand why they do always. Mm. You just know, you know what, when I'm with this person, it's I'm in a dark place. I need to get out of that place. So having a sense of who you want to become, where you want to go with your life, I think helps people through the difficult times, especially around sobriety because um, people got to recreate their lives when they get sober. A lot of times they destroyed their lives.
0: Yeah. Uh, the second one is will.
2: You have to have the will. It's different than willpower. Willpower is almost something that is, um, uh, it's almost something that's put upon. Like we, You talked to me about being in the hospital. I felt like I had the will to want to get better. I could have chosen unconsciously mm-hmm. not to. But I had enough good parenting and enough good experiences to know that I really wanted to get as much life out of life that I could have gotten.
0: Yeah. I
2: remember even as a kid thinking, I used to go, okay, God, if you, if you let me live through this one, I promise I'll, I'll be the best person I can. <laughs> so I've always had to hold to that promise. Mm-hmm. But I think people have to find that place within themselves. And, and hold on to it. And don't let people um, convince you otherwise, because you know, there's a lot of people are pretty envious, and or jealous. And so when they see someone trying to better themselves, they actually can do things to try to hurt them
1: mm-hmm.
2: because of their own inability to try to do the same thing for themselves. So especially in sobriety, it's so important to surround yourself with people that will support you. That's why meetings are so important.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like these also, it's not just sobriety, but it's also just like living emotionally and mentally not necessarily well, but like just working on that journey for yourself. Cause you have faith, which is, what, which is one, which is kind of self-explanatory, something to believe in creativity, which I love that that's on there.
2: Well, I think creativity for me is, um, Looking at, a, looking at a situation and trying to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. Trying to think, how can I resolve the situation? We've done it during COVID so many times, a thousand times over. How we communicate, how we deal with relationships, how we deal with going shopping. <laughs> you know? So to me, there was a positive side of COVID. It was very meditative experience. Mm. i actually i'm gonna look i'm happy it's over but there's a piece of me that's gonna miss that experience because it became very internal and i had to start thinking differently I, you
0: have to find the positives otherwise you get completely destroyed by it um but i want to say the other three metal yeah what's that one well metal
2: is like willpower you have- it's like it's okay. fine
1: right it's like
2: yeah. the the ability to 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 endure i think people find metal by finding out who they are and what they do well and focusing on that and what they can't do uh you know i remember when i went through shrink school i was really good with clients but i was terrible at not terrible i was challenged with research and statistics and and doing all that part of my studies so I felt as though, well, you know what? It's just really clear to me. I'm not going to try to build a career in that area. I'm going to try to build a career with the things that I know I do well, because that will keep me inspired. Mm. That's what's so important for people to constantly be able to reinvent themselves and stay inspired.
0: Yeah. And then you have culpability and rhythm. Culpability to me is
2: about responsibility, especially working a lot in the sobriety rehab world, trying to get people to be responsible for their actions. Because uh, if you take responsibility, then you also take on the responsibility to do something mm. about it. And that's where the change happens. If everything, be- If a lot of things become everybody else's issue... You never really take responsibility. You can't say, well, I drank because I was really stressed out.
1: Or what I hear a lot uh, is because you really stressed me out or my wife really stressed me out or work. You know, you're always blaming somebody else
2: versus taking the responsibility to look at. "Okay, well, what is it about your wife that you could work on? And there's how can you make a different choice?
1: yeah and 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 the first choice would be not to pick up the drink, not to pick up the sandwich, not pick to pick up the needle. I used to see people come into the into the rooms, and uh within the first six months, they're either put on forty pounds or they're running marathons, okay, you know what I mean it's like
0: it's like transference
1: it's transference, yeah.
2: Where they're smoking a lot of cigarettes, drinking yeah,
1: a lot of Coca Cola. Again, you know, they, they, but that coffee machine. Yeah, the I don't even got know if they don't have that Coke anymore. and
0: diet Coke. I know a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, um, if
0: you can You know what? Maybe a
2: marathon. You could say it's addictive, but at least a healthier choice.
0: And then you have what is that? Rhythm. Rhythm.
2: I think our lives go in rhythms and certain things happen at certain times. And sometimes you have to recognize, you know, you may be in a a creative space about, I don't know, working working on a book or, you know, changing relationships. So a lot of stuff may not happen during that time. You may be in a transitional phase in your life. So our lives go in rhythm. Mm-hmm. I feel like people get very frustrated, but like things aren't happening quick enough. Right, and they're you know it's never quick enough. And believe me, I go through the same thing. But recognizing, okay, I'm in this space right now. Uh, I have to let certain things mature and let them happen before they can actually quote happen. So recognizing that our lives go in that rhythm, I think, is so important for sobriety too, because people get frustrated. And they want things to happen quicker than they do.
0: (laughs) I think you could drop the sobriety from this and say seven principles to become uh, to to enter a state of passionate living. Well, that's what I've done.
2: Would you like to be my agent?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of this will help a lot of people entering non-COVID world again. Like you said people who are getting sober like they're when they're about the success i think when we were talking about this success they're comfortable in the struggle part and they're not used to this new part and it's what we just had to go through we we just got shoved into isolation and we had to get comfortable there and then we did and now it's like okay go back into the world again
2: it's it's like dealing with trauma okay so when you have a trauma it affects your life tremendously Let's say. You can't go back into the new world without working through that trauma. and yeah. trying to understand how that trauma has affected you. Uh, my parents, both Holocaust survivors, once they came, I'm from Canada, once they came to Canada, um, you know, they couldn't just pretend like that stuff didn't happen to them they the way they did their therapies at that time, you know, people joined organizations, they joined groups. Uh, My father had a unique trajectory, he actually ended up in Italy for about 10 years after the war. And uh, when he came to Canada, he only spoke Italian and like Russian. So he ended up in the Italian neighborhoods of Montreal, people will call. I didn't speak a word of Italian. They thought we were all Italian, but he he found his tribe. So I'm just saying that we have to be able to work through the trauma because there's new experiences that happen when you when I thought about what are the long term effects, we don't know yet Mm -hmm. exactly what the long term effects are. We're just starting to come out of this. We can get a sense people are communicating differently. Um, Zoom is going to be part of our lives. Uh, Are people going to be nicer? I don't know. (laughs) Um, But uh, we have to work, you know, we have to work through those experiences and see what new structures in society come into place. Entertainment industry is going to work differently. No one knows exactly yet how.
0: Everything's changing. Television might be
2: completely different.
1: Yeah, I wanted to go back to the i to the word sobriety because I personally have a pet peeve with with the expression that they use at, in twelve step step programs because you know being in show business I I never wanted to be sober I'm not I'm not a sober person I just don't drink or do drugs because of my brain style you know would a you know for, for my own emotional hygiene because i know it's bad i know that it, it it lets my defense die anyway the reason why i came up with this fo- thing is something that i read i want to read to you now it it, it and it's a it, it's a quote it's madness provided it comes as the gift of heaven is the channel by which we receive the greatest blessing The men of old who gave things their name saw no disgrace or reproach in madness. Otherwise, they would have not connected with it the name of the noblest of all arts, the art of discerning the future, and called it the manic art. So, according to the evidence provided by our ancestors, madness is a nobler thing than sober sense. Madness comes from God whereas sober sense is merely human. And that was Socrates. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about stigma and mental health stigma and discrimination. Uh, You know, the bigotry that shrouds mental disease uh, to the point where people are ashamed to ask for help. And like like in my case, I thought it was something... I thought it was a character defect, not an emotional dis-ease. When I started getting, uh, treatment, recovery, working with, with a psychiatrist, um, the, uh, the idea that, that, that the, the creative aspects, like, so my madness was really good for creativity, for, for the day job, but it was really, really bad for being a a father or a husband or a brother so for for the human day-to-day stuff i i had no uh, I, I had no tool chest uh but but in terms of the idea of of uh and i learned this from a, a a doctor robert Irwin, when i when i when i was making the movie i went to mclean hospital mental hospital in in um in boston Right and uh, I interviewed all these doctors, and you know they have that they have that black box uh treatment center where it's it's like sixty day not ninety days they take no insurance and it's like hundred and fifty thousand dollars um because they they explained to me that insurance companies will uh quantify a treatment It's
2: true, right,
1: yeah, so if you have the money, you can actually have a psychiatrist on speed dial. So like the psychiatrist is basically your sponsor for the time you're there, you know, and you're, and you're having psychiatric sessions every every day. And the first thing they do is they take you off all medication, you know, and, and they, you know, and they, and then they see how you behave off of all the medication, off of the alcohol, drugs, whatever, you know, it's, it's very intensive, but who's got $200,000, you know, uh, 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 on hand. So so the 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 one thing that I asked I asked Dr. Bob was you know in the in the kind of training I had as an actor where I um you know used my own personal trauma and and put it through the characters that I was p- portraying did I make myself crazy it was was the question I had was you know the acting profession that, did, did it you know, th- that would made me nuts. And, and he said, no, uh, 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 it was his opinion that I accidentally learned how to sublimate all of these unresolved feelings and, and take the pressure off by putting them through the characters I was playing, which I found um, incredibly helpful because then I realized that it wasn't that this, this depression, this clinical depression, which was something that, cause everything was going great when I, when I was at, at the top of my game. It's like what you're talking about. You know, I, you know, my dreams came true. Right. Uh, and now I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to die. I had this overwhelming feeling that I wanted to die. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, and I'd have like these conversations with myself, like, what the hell, what the hell? <laughs> so, so, you know, I, and I also have seven what I call my seven deadly symptoms because they were all symptomatic of this disease that that was unresolved as a result of all of this kind of adolescent trauma that I went through that never got resolved, you know, it never dealt with. I buried it. And in my, in my story, it all came to roost on nine 11. When, when, when those towers went down and I had three really good friends the, in different parts of those two buildings that were killed that day, I found out, I actually found out the following day, I got three phone calls of within within an hour and a half. And it was like, I was driving to work, I was doing a job, I was starting a job in LA. And I remember, like how, you know, I was like, I think I was in shock. Like, how does this happen? How do you get, how does three people, three people that you know, die? It, it, it just doesn't make sense. Um but that kicked up a lot of emotional dust, and, and I I started crashing and burning right after that.
2: You know, I want to comment on a few things you said, but let's start with the last thing about uh, 9-11 mm-hmm. and that experience. There's a term, a uh, psychoanalytic term called absolutism, and it absolutism of the everyday life. 9-11 and COVID are perfect examples of that. I'll explain. Nine, we go about our lives every day. Just We don't even think about stuff. We just assume certain things are absolute. You know, buildings stand up. We're not, We, you know, a friend of mine who lives in England said, well, yeah, that was really hard on Americans. But, you know, we went through all these world wars. So we're used to building <laughs> blowing up <laughs> in London. You know, it's part of our culture. So... Our daily lives get so disrupted, and what we believe is absolute is no longer absolute. So that's a shock. That's a trauma. COVID, same thing. I mean, I live in California. I never entered my mind about a pandemic. I worried about earthquakes. I worried about getting shot, but I never, ever thought about a pandemic. So that shattered my whole sense of reality. Here was this invisible force that could kill me. And I had to change everything about the way I did. 9/11 changed everything about how we dealt with security, our invincibility, etc. Then it got even worse for you because you had a personal connection because you had these three friends that died in the, uh, you know, in the attack. So I can imagine the feelings must have been so overwhelming. Yeah. And in your professional life, you knew how to deal with that. You could sublimate them into characters in your personal life. You didn't have those tools yet. Right. So, you know, I,
1: what, what are the things that you just kicked something up, triggered a, a memory. One thing that really was shocking to me, very painful to me was having to wait. There was a church on park Avenue in the sixties where they were doing these rotating 24 hour, uh, masses for the people that died. And it was like being queued up like uh, at radio city musical to see the next movie, you know, j- just hundreds of people waiting online. And, and they, they would, you know, you'd go out to the side and then a new group with a new family and a, you know, a, a new priest or maybe the same priest, you know, doing all of these masses all over the city. It it just, you know, and, and the city was so quiet at that point. It was so weird.
2: Now, um, this was, be, just so I'm clear, this was because of. Um,
1: this This is 9-11. I'm still in the 9 This is 9-11.
2: Okay, got it, got it.
1: But, you know, we, right, I guess, middle of March, we had a friend that, that died. Um, and, you know, as it turned out, I guess I knew about seven or eight people that died from COVID. It, it was somewhat shocking, but not like nine eleven was uh, was shocking to me.
2: You know, there are different dynamics of it. I mean, it's it's kind of different. But nine eleven, I think, was um just such a you know such a powerful incident. Like if you had worked, imagine Joey, if you worked in the hospitals, mm-hmm. how different your experience of COVID would be than it would be. If you weren't, because then you would be dealing with the reality of it every single day, right. Watching people dying or on ventilators. so would have it might have had a greater impact. A lot of us even though we knew I knew personal people I had patients died, but still I was at a distance. I was still in the comfort of my home watching right. Netflix. but nine eleven really shook that because it shook up the core of America. like this is not supposed to happen here. Yeah, you know, we never, ever imagined that. And it was so violent that that had to do with the trauma, too. And it changed everything.
1: This is a good segue to get into the the idea of this, you know, with the, the with covid and the restrictions are are being um, reduced and lifted. And, and also, I think we're at like 50 percent fully vexed. and then you've got this anti-covid thing that, that that's been politicized and and there's so much doubt you know it's like i you can't everything is
2: politicized
1: now everything is politics i get to the point where i just have all of this doubt and i don't believe anybody
2: you know what i do is and i've been telling uh patients um I agree with you. It's kind of if you look at that on its own, that's so fascinating that it's become (laughs) so politicized. Um, If you're related to trauma and recognize we've all been through trauma. I I think that the reentry, everyone should find their own truth. If you want to wear a mask for the next three months, because. This was very traumatic to you, or you have an illness, or you're just not sure if this is going to come back, or there's going to be a variant. People should allow people the freedom to re-entry at the pace that they need to re-enter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, the idea that we are just going to go back to the way it was, I think is unrealistic. Right. I think there'll be a, a sort of an amalgamation of what this experience was like and what the new reality is like. Things have to take time. That's in that statement about rhythm. It takes time. So yeah, if you're not sure, then you wear the mask as long as you want to wear it. Because uh, I'm not sure either who to listen to. Is it going to come back? I don't want to be the one that they turn to and say, oops, sorry, we made a mistake. Yeah. Uh, you know. So I'm going to find my own truth in it. And I'm gonna do it. And what's interesting is the hostility you'll start to get from some people mm-hmm. who feel like maybe you shouldn't be wearing a mask. But you know what? Maybe I have other health issues going on that I don't wanna take a chance with. Um I, I I've
1: gotten that. And I just say that well, I you know, I I have COVID. And then they back right, the, they back right the fuck away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: I like that. <laughs> you know, I remember a few years ago, I was in Japan for a little while. And uh, it's the first time I saw this. Uh, people wearing masks. And this is way before COVID. It's about five years ago. And it's it's a big part of their society. You go out on the streets in Tokyo, Kyoto, wherever you are. People, if you're sick or concerned about getting sick, you wear a mask. Yeah. And I yeah. thought it was it was really fascinating. Like i never, it was so odd. I'd never seen that before mm-hmm. because there's so much concern in their society about the well-being of other people. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm hoping that that becomes integrated in our society too. That mask yeah. wearing doesn't become something that's frowned upon, but maybe it's appropriate to wear a mask. I,
0: I plan on wearing a mask when I get a cold now. That's <laughs> right. I plan on wearing a mask not to get a cold. I, you know,
1: I, I haven't, I haven't caught a cold. I've been on airplanes. I've, I've masked up I, before COVID-19. I get on an airplane and I had a cold two days later. That's what I mean
2: about the new reality. Things will get integrated. I hope there'll be respect for people, uh, you know, that choose to wear masks.
0: I think there will be. And I think a lot of people will still wear masks, you know, for months until they feel very safe to just take them off. But I do think even going forward, just people will wear them now when they travel more, when they're sick. Like I love that's such a smart idea. Like why wouldn't you wear a mask when you're sick to not, like, if you're going to make me go to work, if I can't take a sick day, that's the other thing I think is so great is this remote working is that now people shouldn't be afraid to like work from home or like stay home. If you have kids or if you're actually sick, because people were afraid to take sick days to stay home.
2: Yeah and now we realize we can connect to people through Zoom. Mm-hmm. We can connect people online. And um and that I don't think that's going to go away. I think there'll be a hybrid. Yeah. notice in my own practice some patients want to come back in. Yeah. Other patients like, "No, you know, this works well for me. I don't have to travel in LA traffic for an hour and then sit in your office for an hour and then go I can actually, you know, do all this at home."
1: Mhm.
2: And yeah. um, I think what's interesting, too, is it's forcing us to communicate in different ways, uh, use different senses to try to connect to someone. So, again, I feel something positive will come out of it. Even with meetings, I hear from patients going like, you know, I want to go back in, but I liked some of the Zoom meetings because I got to… I got to connect to people in Australia. I got to connect to people outside of my geographical area. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have before and learn from their experiences. So the integration is going to be important.
0: It does seem like the world just wants us to switch, quickly go back. And what you said is so true that we all just went through a trauma and we have to notice what that did to us before we can like, Re-enter. Uh, what are some? What's just some advice you would give someone who's struggling with the trauma of COVID? Just that COVID and isolation alone, and then you add in the politics of it all, and all the other things that may have happened to that person. What is like? What are like three things you would tell someone to help them?
2: I would tell them to be careful what you expose yourself in the media to recognize that the politicization of the masks really has nothing to do with the science of wearing a mask. That this, if you look at the scientists and find people that you trust, they're all telling us wear a mask. It's been that simple. And in some ways, just like in 12 step, go for the simple answer. So one advice is know who to listen to and also know to listen to your own truth that um you know you gotta stay with what feels right inside of you a lot of people will say certain things not based on science or fact but just based on you know their own like political beliefs or just being jerks you mm-hmm.
0: know? yeah
2: and so you have to be careful so that's one who you're going to listen to uh understand that things have to be integrated into society we don't know yet how what changes are going to happen so it's a process. With process, you got to go a little slow. You've got to examine both your feelings, the the impact on society, the impact on all of us, and let maybe perhaps some positive things. So I'd say, take your time. Know who you're going to listen to. Take your time. And probably the third thing is listen to your own truth. You yeah. know, If you want to wear a mask, more power to you.
0: Yeah. And I think that goes beyond to just the science of it all. Like if you're not ready to Be next to someone and talk to someone even like, you know, if you got very comfortable in that isolation, take your time before you go to a restaurant with your friends. Even if COVID isn't a concern anymore, just like being in a physical space with people can be very anxiety inducing. So don't do it if you don't feel ready.
2: Yeah. I'm going to dinner. One of the first dinners with some friends on Sunday and I said, I want to sit outside And, um, has everyone been vaccinated? You know, that's my, that's my comfort level. I'm not ready to sit inside. Other people are, that's fine.
0: Yeah. It's also so nice outside be around nature in
2: California. Why would I not?
0: Yeah. Right. You never need to go inside. (laughs) I think those are very good.
2: If something good is and some, you know, I know that I don't, uh devalue how difficult this has been on everyone including myself but I do try to look at okay so it's just like you know to bring it full circle like being in the hospital that was an incredibly difficult time but as an adult my responsibility was okay that was a terrible thing that happened um I going to try to take responsibility to work through it the best way I can. And what can I use from that experience to help me get forward in my life, you know, to, to help me develop and help me be of service to people and work with people and not get not feel sorry for myself. But it's given me a lot of times the inner strength to do things that I never thought I would have done. But it took a lot of work to get to that place. It didn't just happen.
0: No, it takes a lot of work, so I guess another thing we could you know advise people is to to try doing the work that it's not going to be a snap of the finger thing it's
1: it's hard listen all work is hard work you know it's it's really hard work to put on four hundred pounds
2: you know it's, it's just as yeah imagine how much you have to eat and not move yeah
1: so it, it it's just as hard uh to get you know put on your shoes and And take a walk. I mean, with, with clinical depression, that, that's the biggest thing is, is if you can, if you can move, you're going to, you can change your move just by moving because the dopamine serotonin levels get pumped up.
2: You know, one of the most important, let me add what I think that I'm hoping as someone who works in mental health is that some of the stigma around mental health will dissipate more and more because people are recognizing that COVID has impacted our mental health tremendously. And we're talking about it more. Oprah's out there talking about it more. Prince Harry's talking about it more. People are talking more. Uh, So, you know, I think that is something wonderful, just the fact that the shame Gets removed more and more, and the ability to have a dialogue and conversation around mental health is becoming more accepted. Because that's where the power will come from—is through the exchange of ideas.
1: Incredibly, yeah. Uh, you know, we always feel better. And I, yeah. I feel better for talking to you, Doctor yeah. Doctor. I'll G. send you
2: a bill
0: there you go dad just go it? on his show and it'll be it? even
1: yeah what do they call it danny the, the, the Vimo. i'll Vimo you Ven-
0: venmo yeah yeah <laughs> but this was wonderful and we want to have you back that i'd love to have you back on
2: I, I really love doing it you guys are fantastic
0: thank
1: you howard thank you for doing it
2: i'm glad i was able to help We, we appreciate thank
1: you so much yeah, yeah thank you so much That was great, Daniela. <laughs> how was that? That?
0: <laughs> that was really great. I like talking, um, you know, because even when you talk to someone who's like what, a professional in that I field, like, it I, just but, feels but, like you're but, talking but, to anyone. But what I like is
1: is, uh, is is having having a doctor revealing parts of his past, you know, and talking about yes. his life because, and that's that's a change. A lot of doctors are starting to do that, and and you feel safer you know you feel safer uh and sharing your history with them because i i know when yeah. i started therapy you know i lied for the first six months that was yeah. one expensive. of my favorite
0: things about my therapist is that she shares what she's going through too like when it relates to me she's like this story might help you this is what i went through and i was like it does help me thank yeah. you <laughs> you're That's not just awesome. a person saying and why and why and why it's like she feels like a friend it feels right. like i'm talking to a friend which is really wonderful. Um, but that's what it felt like with him, just talking to a friend. And I think he he has a lot of great points and advice on how to reenter after COVID and after this trauma that we went through. And, you know, those principles that he has. That we're still going through. That we're still you going know? through. And I think those, those principles we went through with him, we can translate into any situation and, ma- and just into our lives and remember those things and they can help us move forward. Mm -hmm. I love you, Daddy. I love you, Danny.